Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kirsten Powers about her new book, Saving Grace. Speak your truth, stay centered, learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Kirsten is a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN. Prior to her journalism career, Kirsten served as a deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for public affairs in the Clinton administration, as well as various other communications-related roles. Kirsten, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. It's so great to see you. So this book, Saving Grace, is really a very compelling prescription for navigating the times in which we find ourselves. But before we turn to defining grace, your journey to finding grace and the application of grace, all of the heart of the book, tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself, growing up in Alaska, moving to the big city and and the like. Yeah, I'm from Fairbanks, Alaska, which is um, a, a town in one of the few towns in Alaska. It's pretty far north. It's, it's in the interior of Alaska is what we call it. And so it's um, freezing cold most of the year and pitch black most of the year. It's up in the summer where it's sunlight 24 hours a day. So my parents were archaeologists there. So they were professors at the University of Alaska and they, that's how we ended up there. They took jobs with the university after getting their PhDs at the University of Wisconsin um, in Madison. And so I moved there when I was three and lived there my whole life until I left to go to college. And that put me on the East Coast and um, at University of Maryland. And so I was in the DC area and uh, started working in politics and, you know, the rest is history. (laughs) Right. You would, would stints at Fox TV for a few years and CNN now, and then your regular column for USA Today. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, journalism is a sort of second career. So I had worked in the Clinton administration and from there I went to AOL kind of at the beginning of the tech boom and ran their international communications there. And then I moved to New York City and I worked in politics there, democratic politics there. And it's while I was doing that, that I started doing TV. And I then started writing a column and for the New York Post and uh, signed on with Fox News as their one of their few left of center voices. And in 2016 left and have been at CNN ever since. At another time, you and I have to have a conversation about Fox because I spent two and a half years on Fox during uh, Monica Lewinsky and oh, impeachment. Wow. Yeah, that uh, a regular on Hannity and a regular on Hannity and Combs mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and, and and the like. Yeah. As did you. Yeah. So this book, I think, has the best subtitle of any book um, I've read so far on the podcast. The subtitle is "Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts." Wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad that you like it because it was very hard to figure out. It originally just was learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts because there's so much confusion about what grace means. Often people think it means just rolling over and letting people do what they want. I thought it was really important to include in the title that people should still be speaking their truth and and that it also staying centered, I think, conveys the message that grace is actually really good for you 
it's not really so much about other people because people automatically go to, you want me to give grace to who or what, or, you know, and that's not, that's not good for me. And, and my argument is actually, it's, it's really good for you. And you write that in the book, you offer no moral judgments, but rather practical insights and possible solutions. So you're not mm-hmm. judging people, which would be very ungraceful exactly. <laughs> or ungrace-like. Right? Yeah, it would be very ungrace-like. And look, and that's my point is if this is not for you, that's totally fine. This is not me saying everybody should have grace and everybody should practice grace and everybody should handle it. It's what I found to be really transformative for me. And so, and a lot of other people, I think have really connected with it since the book has come out. I I do think a lot of people connect with it, but for people who are like, nope, I don't think this is the answer. And I'm, I think, you know, fight fire with fire. And so I'm going to do the same things that people on the other side are doing. I'm like, okay, I mean, that's what works for you. Then do that. That's fine. So tell us a little bit about, you go into it in great detail in the book, the, 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 essentially the trauma of being a, in the public eye. But tell us a little bit about why you decided um, to write this book. You said, I headed down this path reluctantly and haltingly, and at many times in the journey considered turning back. You say of yourself that your temperament is more like Joan of Arc than than Jesus. Yeah, so, that's a very important line. <laughs> Yeah, because I think it was a really hard, it was hard. That's the things. Sometimes people have said to me in interviews, well, isn't grace just the easy way out? It's just, and yes, if you, if you don't know what grace means, if you think grace means letting other people get away with things and never confronting anybody, then sure, I guess that would be easier, but that's not what grace is. Grace is a very much of an inner orientation of how you see other people. And it's, you know, I say grace is giving people space to not be you. And so it's not judging, it's not going down that labeling, contemptuous path, um, dominating other people, sort of what I think we think of as strength a lot of times, right, in our, in our culture, uh, whereas it takes so much more strength to use grace. And so I'm a naturally, I talk about in the book, healing a lot of my trauma. Before I healed my trauma, I was a naturally hyper-dualistic person. I just saw things in black and white, all or nothing. And so if somebody had done something, voted for somebody, said something that I thought wasn't right, then it wasn't just that that wasn't right. They weren't right. (laughs) There was something wrong with them and they were bad. And I had a very hard time not seeing it that way. And so I really struggled with this. It was a real journey. And there were times where I was like, I can't do this. I'm giving the money back. I'm not writing this book. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm perfectly fine hating people. <laughs> it works great for me. It's just I knew on some level it didn't really work for me. Well, but you also describe, I think, rather um, cathartically almost, um, how much sort of pain, if you will, uh, you were in before you started journey, journeying yeah. toward grace. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you, I mean, I don't, sometimes I think, well, this sounds like she's been born again, but it's not exactly that at all. It's not Mm -hmm. a Christian paradigm grace, but there is a, there is a spiritualness that you were searching for given the sort of the pain of your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a spiritual aspect to it for sure. And, and I do use the Christian definition of grace, but you don't need to be a Christian to find help in this book. And I wrote it 
very clearly to be for people of all faiths or no faiths. And I've had people who are atheists tell me that they really resonated with it. I just think the Christian paradigm of grace being unmerited favor is a great paradigm because then it's not dependent on the other person. It's not dependent on you liking the other person. And in fact, it could even be somebody you despise or hate. So that's a real paradigm shift, right? So, and I like that paradigm, but it's not, first of all, Christianity is not the only religion to have that view either. Um, but I, I was really, you know, I had chronic fatigue. I'd been told I had chronic Lyme disease, that I had fibro, um, fibromyalgia, that I had um, Epstein-Barr. I was exhausted all the time. I had brain fog, which is fantastic when you're on live television all the time, as you could attest, like, that's really fun. And I had clinical anxiety And so I had all these things where I just felt like this is just unsustainable. I'm just miserable. And there's no real explanation for why I'm so miserable. And I ended up discovering the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which some people may know about. And it's basically about psychosomatic illness that's born of unintegrated trauma. And so that's when I realized my body was telling me I had some unintegrated trauma. And so I started going down the path of healing that. And if I hadn't done that, I don't think I would have been able to write this book. And I don't think I would have had the capacity to create that space for other people. I'd like you to uh, tease out a little bit this matter of trauma. You talk a lot about it in the book and the importance of coming to terms with it and how grace requires an emotional and psychological capacity that trauma takes away from us. So your journey down this path of recognizing past trauma, I think, was really instructive and mm-hmm. for me and for hopefully uh, millions of readers who buy the book. Yeah, well, I think a lot of times also we think of trauma, like when I first started seeing a therapist and she started talking about my trauma, I was like, what is she talking about? Like, I don't, you know, I like, yeah, I mean, I had some things happen to me that were I guess they were traumatic, but I always associated that word with, you know, like PTSD because you went to war or something. Right. And so it felt a little dramatic to me. And what I learned was that trauma is really just any um, hard experience we've had that we haven't really integrated. And so it's not event specific. It's person specific. So you, you can't say X event is traumatic, although there are some that would be traumatic for everybody, but take a divorce, for example, for me, my parents' divorce was very traumatic because they got divorced at a time, you know, it was the seventies. We're in a conservative town. Nobody got divorced. Nobody talked about it. It just was, we're divorced, deal with it. Don't ever bring it up again. Right. Versus another child that grows up in a family where the parents say, we're getting divorced, but we're going to talk to you about it. And we're going to see you and hear you. And if you get scared, you can come and talk to us and we're going to help you process it. That that's your scene and your trauma and you integrate it. And you're allowed to process those feelings. That's not going to follow you through your whole life the way that my trauma did around that. And then it got triggered. And I read about this in the book in my mid thirties, when there just were a series of deaths in my family um, that I just didn't know how to grieve or how to process and they were never processed. And so I think they really took up like, you know, residence in my body and when you're traumatized and if people don't like the word trauma, you can just think of it as a a wounding or that bad thing that happened to me that I've never dealt with. Um, when we're in that state, we become hyper binary. It's how our brain keeps us safe. 
So the sorting of people into good and bad baskets is just, it's just your brain trying to keep you safe. And uh, it's unconscious. You're not aware you're doing it. You're absolutely convinced that uh, you are seeing things completely clearly <laughs> and nobody can you know, disabuse you of that because it's what makes you feel safe. And I think it's what made me feel safe. So your book inspired me to reread other books, especially oh, neat. my Buddhist stuff, which was meaningful for me for a good part of, of my life. But I read this book called Radical Forgiveness by mm-hmm. Colin Tipping. I don't know if you, you saw it. He talks about grace. He says essentially what it does when you come to terms with unresolved trauma is you're able to stop seeing yourself as a victim and others as perpetrators and that people are more complex than that and issues are more complex than that. And you talked about that. You, you, I think early on in the book, you, you say that one of the best ways of thinking about grace um, is that it is the belief that people are doing the best they can with what they have. Yeah. Which I, the first time I heard that was like, what? No, they aren't. <laughs> I, you know, I really was just, I had this idea that there were just certain ways to be. And actually, and I lacked humility as well, because the truth was I was very hard on myself and I was very mean to myself. I just wasn't aware that I was doing it. Right. So all the judgment I was heaping on other people, I was also heaping on myself, but I didn't think of it as judgment. I just thought of it as just seeing things clearly. And yeah, grace gives us a capacity to see all of people and not see people just as the thing they did or the thing they said or how they voted. You know, it it just really just creates a lot of space that wasn't there before. Like that's a practical application of it Um, because when you, when you, and, and I had, and it's really important to say, this doesn't mean that people, even when people are doing the best they can, that doesn't mean they're not responsible for what they're doing. It doesn't mean that that they shouldn't be held accountable if they harm somebody. So people can get a little confused about that. They'll think like, well, that just means they're doing the best they can. So just give them some grace and quotations and just let them go on their way. And that's not really grace. That's enabling, um, you know, have, holding people accountable is, is an act of grace. Uh, it's, it's, it's stepping forward and saying, we care about you and we care about the people in this culture. And, you know, you're going to be held accountable for this with humanity though. It's not, it's sometimes people say I'm just holding someone accountable and they're actually, it looks more like annihilation to me than accountability. So it's not just that they did this thing and they're being held accountable for it. It's that they did this thing and they are rotten to the core, right? They're just, there's nothing redeeming about them. They should never be allowed back into society. Um, and so it's that, that would be what, you know, accountability without grace looks like. Yeah. And you also add to that though, another important component, which is you say that grace without repentance and accountability is enabling. So talk a little bit about that, the repentance component of it, because you have this multi-layered, um, sort of process by which you think repentance and forgiveness has yeah. to play out. It yeah. just and can't I, be, uh, hey, I'm sorry if if the people who I, you know, Andrew Cuomo, it can't be that. Yeah, and we have, unfortunately, not a lot of models in our culture of what repentance looks like. And so when you're repentant about something, 
you're, you have a changed heart. So you actually have been grieved by what you did and you, you don't want to ever do it again. And you want to make things right. You want to create wholeness where you cause brokenness versus what we see a lot, which is, oops, I got caught. Now I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. And if we're lucky, we'll get a real apology, which is, uh, you know, actually taking responsibility. Most of the time what we get is a kind of, I'm sorry if somebody was offended kind of apology, right? And it's like, that's not an apology. Like an apology takes responsibility for what you did. I'm sorry that I did this. Not that I'm sorry that somebody felt this way about it, right? And so it's it's something that I think it would be nice to see more of in our culture. It'd be nice to see more people holding themselves accountable before they get caught. Right. Um, and, and then I also, I think it would be nice to have a culture that when people do that, that we could welcome them back because a lot of times I feel like in our culture, it's just, it's so brutal that people are just like, no, like I was saying before, like somebody has done something and like, that's just it. I'm, you know, people are just like, I'm just done. And, you know, and do people have, do we believe, I think grace helps you see that people um, have the possibility, see the possibility in them and see the capacity for people to change um, versus this idea that people never change. It's hard to change, but people do change. And I've changed a lot. And I write about that a lot in the book. Um, so giving people the space to do that and, and instead of treating them, you know, like, and, and also, you know, another way I describe grace, it's, it's seeing all of the humanity in a person, right? So they're not the thing they did. And, and I think if we can't, for people who are like, "Mm, I don't know about that, then I would say, how would you like people to think about you? Would you like them to only think about that you are the person who did the worst thing that you've done, or even some of the bad things you've done? Because I hope you don't think you've never done anything bad. I hope you don't think you've never harmed anybody. I hope you don't think you've never hurt anybody. Maybe you didn't do the thing that you're judging, but you did do other things. And we've all experienced grace. If we think about it, you know, grace is, you know, I say in the book, it is, I mean, it it is what makes coexistence possible. We would not be able to live together if we did not offer each other grace on some level on a regular basis. What was interesting to me in your journey toward grace is how much you drew on the teachings of civil rights yeah. um, leaders, your interview of Ruby Sales. And I, there's a quote that you have in the book. It says the civil rights leaders, you have a quote, which says they stared the devil in the eyes and said, not today. Then they did it again and again and again, and they never lost their humanity or became filled with bitterness while facing down cruelty, oppression, and dehumanization. And in your interview with the civil rights icon, Ruby Sales, you write that she said, once you hate, you are no longer in control of your destiny. So talk a little bit about that, because I think that was, it gives me goosebumps when I read these quotes, and it, it did it when I read the book. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. When I said to her, I I said, people are going to say to me, but how can I not hate X person or Y person and the things they did? And and that's what she said. Once once you hate, you've given up control over your destiny. And and chances are pretty good. You'll start to become something like what you're opposing also is something else that she said. And and that's why the, the, the civil rights 
leaders were trained in nonviolence. It was rooted in their Christian faith and also studying Gandhi. Um, and it was, it was, it was in large part for their own to preserve their own humanity because what they were facing down was so evil that they, they didn't, they didn't want that to basically come into them. Right. So when, when you use grace, you are, you're refusing to go down the road of the, of the person by judging them, because once you judge them, you are now taking on all of their stuff. Whereas I say, be discerning, see that something is wrong, name it if it needs to be named and do something about it. And, and by the way, mean tweets are not doing something about it. It's, it's, and that's not to say no one ever needs to be called out on social media. Me too. Black lives matter would not have happened without social media. So it's not an all or nothing thing. But most of the time, if your cousin, when you go home for Thanksgiving is saying some things that are really problematic and you have tried to explain what's wrong with them and your cousin's not interested in listening and now you feel helpless and angry, you're judging, you're, you're feeling contempt and all these other things. I'm saying rather than going down that road, just see clearly that this is, you know, this is not right. And this is not, you're a no to this. And now what can you do about it? Um, can you give money to an organization that helps the kind of people that perhaps your cousin was denigrating? Can you volunteer for them? Could you write a letter to the editor? Could you amplify voices that are raising awareness around that issue? If you're me, could you write a column? Let's find other things to do other than demonizing other people. And the person who is going to win in the end is you because think about all the times you have judged somebody and how often has that person known that you're judging them very rarely, right? You're miserable. You're thinking about it all the time. You're thinking about how horrible they are. You're thinking, Oh, what kind of person would do this? And I can't and blah, blah, blah. And they're just like sleeping like a baby, right? It's not, you're the person who's suffering. And that's what Ruby sales was getting at that. It's not people have are so confused into thinking that these kinds of behaviors are some sort of act of strength or empowerment, right? And they're not, they're the opposite. She said to you, if I remember correctly, that I think her quote was, hate eats you up inside and you become the victim. Yeah, I, the, it's this idea that is often, people will say this about unforgiveness and I think it's true of grace, which is if you, it's, it's drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And so, um, but because we're so- Except confused, in the Princess Bride, that doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but because we're so confused about what strength is in this country, that I, that I think people start to adopt the bad behavior of the people that they're opposing. And so like Nietzsche said, if you're going to fight the monster, you can't become the monster. And, and that's what often happens is people start justifying, but they're doing this. And so therefore I have to do it back. And, and it's like, wait, hold on. They're doing something that you are identifying is wrong. So how is you doing that back to them going to help anything? Um, and I also should address the fact that the fact that a lot of people are triggered by the idea of grace in this environment is normal. It's, it's a very normal reaction because there's so much misunderstanding about what grace means. So if you think that grace just means letting people do what they want and being a doormat and just absorbing bad behavior and never doing anything about it, then of course I would say grace is terrible. It's just that that's not what grace is. And speaking of, you know, 
civil rights heroes. I mean, does anyone say John Lewis or MLK or Ruby Sales weren't speaking truth and saying really, really hard things about our culture? Of course, they were saying extremely hard things about our culture, but they were also doing it with grace. And so you you can still continue to name the problems in society. You can, til- you can still continue to hold people accountable, um, but you can do it in a way that doesn't make you feel miserable all the time like I was. And I think a lot of people have been that doesn't make you filled with anxiety and dread and hopelessness and, and all these other things that I think have become sort of commonplace. Exactly. And I think that uh, you and I are both, I think, adherents of Tara Brock. Yes. Love Tara. Meditation Buddhist teacher Mm -hmm. here in Washington, D.C., and she talks a lot about grace in the context of loving kindness. Yeah. I think it's an important thing to say again that grace, as you've said it, is really more about you than it is other directed. There's forgiveness and that's a component, but it's really more about you and helping you find a way to coexist with, as your book says, people who drive you nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that to the extent it's about other people, if everybody was doing this, then we would have a much more a better functioning society, right? It's, it's a, so in that sense, it could be something that could make a difference in terms of our culture and in terms of our, our country. But in the immediate, the, the, the immediate beneficiary will be yourself. And, and and probably your relationships, like your immediate relationships around you. Right. You're right. I keep reading your book. I feel like I should read okay. it a little bit out loud. Um, you're right that the reality of integrating grace into our lives and our broader culture provides a world of options that don't include abandoning all of our principles or becoming doormats. I think it's a critical sentence. Maybe you can, again, flesh it out a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, uh, I'm, I'm getting kind of at one of the things that I try to take on and that I had to unlearn, which is binary thinking. I have a, a chapter about how that binary thinking, as I was talking about earlier, makes it impossible to offer grace because if you only have two options and somebody does something wrong, then you have to put them in the bad evil basket, right? So it's a similar thing when someone says grace, it's like, well, either I have to have grace for people or I have to, you know, and which means letting them get away with everything or, you know, or the opposite of that. And it's not those, you know, I have to dominate them. That's not it. There's, there's lots of things in the middle. And when you let go of that binary thinking, it just opens up space to see lots of different options for how to think about people. It doesn't mean that there aren't that binary thinking isn't necessary. Sometimes there are some things that are absolutely wrong. There are some things that are absolutely evil. I mean, I just use evil to describe segregation, right? So I'm not saying that that's not the case, but when, when, what most of us are dealing with is how do we, how do we process and handle what's happening in our culture? And, and what I hear the most from people is how do I, how do I handle this with people I know sometimes love in my family or my neighbors or my coworkers, how do I navigate those relationships without becoming consumed with despair and hatred? And that's where I say grace comes in. Right. And to my definitions, again, that's where, and you, and, and you use these words, you say 
fundamentally, in order to practice grace, you need humility. And and Buddhism, um, and really most faiths, faiths define humility as feeling that we are all we all share common ground that we're neither superior or inferior. And you talk a little bit about the the, the child's mind, the, the willingness to embrace the world without the from not from the perspective of I'm right and you're wrong, but maybe I'm wrong too. Yeah, that and that was a hard one for me. The idea of I, I quote a social scientist who says you sh- you know in, intellectual humility is always asking yourself what am I not seeing here? Uh, is there is there something I'm not seeing here? What is it possible that I'm wrong? And that's very hard. And I. And I, I do it. I just did it a couple of days ago where I was having a conversation with somebody who I really respect, who was saying something that I really disagreed with, but I did stop and go, you know, I, it, maybe I'm not seeing something here. And, and, you, and you can't, if you can't do that, then you can't have grace because if you think that you're completely right about everything and you figured everything out, then when you encounter a person who disagrees with you, it's actually kind of natural to judge them, Right. So versus if you think, well, maybe I'm not right. And also looking at a person who's just done something that's harmful, thinking I, I can think of a time when I did something where I hurt somebody, where I did something that I regretted. Maybe it's not this thing, but, you know, I can have the humility of recognizing there before the grace of God go I, that maybe if I had the same life experiences as this person and grew up in the same family as they did and had the same traumas they did. Who's to say that I wouldn't do this? That's humility. And that's that. And again, that doesn't mean the person gets, it doesn't mean that person doesn't get held accountable. It's just, it's a different kind of accountability. And it's, it's not an accountability that erases their humanity. And it's an account of, and it's not accountability that makes them the thing that they did, which is what we often do. And we see it in our criminal justice system. It's, you know, somebody commits a crime and now they are that, you know, that whatever crime they committed, that's now what they are for the rest of their lives. And, and it's not, this is a person who has a story and based on like all the social science, uh, you can almost a hundred percent guarantee has like off the chart trauma. Right. Um, And we see them as a whole person. We see the humanity in them and they have done this thing wrong and they need to be held accountable with humanity. And, that that's just not the framework that we really use. You know, we hear people just say things like do the time, do the crime. Like, it's like, this is a person, right? And, and they deserve more than that. And, and so I think grace gives you the ability to, to, to say to that, see that person that way to, you know, create space for that person and not judge them and not hold them in contempt. Right. You say that grace or humility um, is what allows you to see goodness in others. Maya Angelou says that humility, grace, I think they're interchangeable in some ways, comes from inside out. It says someone was here before me and I am here because of what has been paid for um, I, um, from the earth and I have to be humble. I can be noble because I'm also from the stars, but it's recognizing that in all of us that allows us to coexist in a less binary way than we are now. Yeah. And yet how many people do you know? And I think I probably, no, I don't think I probably, I was like this, 
How many people do you know who believe that you could put them at any point in history, in any situation, growing up in any family, being exposed to any experience, and they would always do the right thing, right? How many people believe that they would have been marching against segregation? White people believe that they would have been doing that without recognizing this is just statistical unlikelihood of that. <laughs> um, it did happen, but but why, why do we think that we have this inherent goodness without recognizing what Maya Angelou is saying? It's like, you are who you are because of other people and because of who, you, who raised you and the environment you were raised in and who poured into you and who mentored you and who taught you and, and all these other things. And so when you realize that, then you do have humility and you don't believe that you are somehow have this inherent goodness that you were just born with. You know, that makes right. you better than other people and makes you a person who would never, ever. I mean, one of the most like red flag statements a person can ever make is, you know, I would never. What kind of person would, you know, those kinds of statements, which I've certainly made, um, is a red flag. <laughs> you should pay attention to it. Right. Um, you, you write <laughs> um, you write to that to, to the reading um, audience. Beware of motive attribution asymmetry. So tell us what motive attribution asymmetry is. Yeah. So it's a social science term that basically is talking about it's, it's you believing that you're motivated, you and probably people like you are motivated by goodness and being informed and wanting to make the world a better place. And the people who, who you oppose are motivated by hatred and, and lack of information and are bad motives, right? So you're motivated by good and people who are on the other side, so to say, are motivated by bad, which again, makes it impossible to have grace. Like why, you know, if if that's how you see people, then you're not, you're not using humility. You're not seeing all of them. It's, you're just making them into this kind of amorphous blob of people who are bad people, right? Um, and, and, and you're making yourself into this very righteous person who's doing everything for the right reasons. And, you know, in one of the studies I was reading, it's, they're saying like, what makes this so problematic is like, where do people get these ideas, (laughs) right? Like, where would you get the idea that you would be so different than another group of people? Like, why would that happen? You know, the fact of the matter is most of the people who believe things differently than you do believe that they're doing the right thing that doesn't make it right i'm not saying that makes it right i'm just saying that they do really believe that what they believe is is what is going to be better for them better for the country um, better for the people that they care about and they may be wrong in your eyes and they may even be wrong empirically right but i think if you look at their motivations just just say the only thing that motivates them is hatred or um, stupidity or, or whatever it is, is, is missing the point. You quote the social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the Cuddling of the American Mind book, and he talks about confirmation bias. That's mm-hmm. another important thing that you talk about. Maybe we can talk a little bit about it. You write of it that confirmation bias is that we make our first judgments rapidly and are dreadful at seeking out evidence that might disconfirm those initial judgments. 
Yeah, our brains are really working against us in the game of grace. <laughs> so, and and for other people, and so the more that you can realize that, it also will give you more empathy for people when you when you understand that um, that we're all our our brains are designed to seek out things that will confirm what we already believe. And to not see the things that will uh, not confirm what we believe. Our brains are designed to uh, engage in binary sorting. It used to be necessary when, you know, a long time ago when maybe you would see another group of people and they could potentially, you know, another tribe that was potentially going to kill you. And you'd have to make a very quick binary sorting decisions about are these people safe? Are they not safe? You know, or a tiger's chasing me. What should I do? Where should they go? But most of the problems that we're dealing with don't require snap judgments, right? That they, they actually require more analysis and thought and taking a step back. And, and instead our brains just want to start sorting and they want to start judging. Um, and, and so I think when you can understand that, um, first of all, you're not the only person you're, you're the person that you're dealing with um, is not the only one who's using confirmation bias. I get accused of confirmation bias all the time. And I always think like, so do you think you're not using confirmation bias? Like I, right. It's like, just think about what you're saying. Like confirmation bias is a real thing and we all do it. And so it can help you understand how people end up thinking what they think. And Jonathan Haidt says, if you, if you think you can use reason with people to get them to change their minds. You're going to be very disappointed because they've never used reason to make up their minds in the first place. They, they decided what they believe. This is what everybody does. They decide what they believe and then they find the things that will support their beliefs. And that's how it works. And very few people actually sit there and put their beliefs under the microscope and say, is this right or wrong? Have I considered all of the other you know, positions and different ways to see this. Um, and, and which gets to another sort of hallmark of, I think, practicing grace, which is seeing that people are doing the best they can with what they have. And so, you know, somebody who has reached what you believe is a faulty or even a harmful decision or belief, you know, are doing the best they can with what they have. And that includes the stuff we talked about earlier. And it includes this, it includes confirmation bias. It includes, um, you know, um, binary sorting and mode of attribution asymmetry and all these other things that really, really work against us. Right. And you quote the Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, as uh, observing that hatred holds a group together much more quickly and easily than love and inclusivity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's talking, I think, there about the scapegoat mechanism, which is a lot of, you know, we have a real primal need to scapegoat people. And so that's where you get the person's all bad because they did the bad thing um, really can, you know, spin out of control because this person then becomes sort of the repository for all the rage and hatred that society feels. And sometimes even the guilt that society feels um, in the Bible, you know, it was the, the scapegoat was an actual animal that they heaped the sins of, you know, culture on and then either, you know, killed it or drove it out into uh, a way, you know, away forever out into the wilderness. And so that's, you know, that kind of hatred can be electrifying. It can bring people together and make them feel like um, we have expunged ourselves of the sins of society 
by picking this one person and saying they're responsible, right? They're the bad one and we're the good ones versus seeing that person with grace, which is not going to be as electrifying. It's it's interesting because you and I operate in the world of, of social media, cable news and the cancel culture that's sweeping the country. And it's very hard to find humility and grace in that environment because it is such a contentious world. For me, I've largely stepped out of it. I don't engage in social media with anybody. I'll post a song by the Beatles or here's my latest hit on CNN with Laura Jarrett. But if they say I am uh, this or that, I just leave it be. I just can't, I can't engage. And I think that that's very psychologically helpful to me. It is psychologically helpful. And I think that's, you're using boundaries. I have an entire chapter on boundaries, right? Where you've, you're, you're recognizing that this is unhealthy and there's no reason to engage in this. And so I'm not going to. Some people feel that they need to be on social media or that it's informing them in some way. Like I said before, sometimes social media can actually be quite a revolutionary tool for change. So I don't want to say that it's all bad, but I do talk a lot about the social science around what it does to our brains. It's, it's not, it's not a coincidence that when you get off of Twitter, if you've been on there for too long, that you feel angry and, and maybe even hateful towards large groups of people, because that's what it was designed to do. It was designed to tap into your brain and get you jacked up on outrage. Right. So we have to be aware of that. And one of the first things I had to do, because when I got to this point where I realized this is unsustainable, the way I'm thinking about people, even the way I'm talking about people sometimes, especially on social media is not aligned with my values. This is not who I want to be. Then the question was, and I said, and I think grace is the answer. I need to have more grace for other people. And I think we need more grace. But then the question was, well, how do I get from point A to point B, right? You don't just snap your fingers and have grace. You know, it actually, I discovered was a practice. And so one of the first things I had to do was get off of social media and I stayed off of it completely for a month. And then I went back on and I was like, whoa, it seemed even more dysfunctional with that distance. And then I stayed off of it. Most of the time I was writing the book. I've been spending a little more time on it since I'm promoting the book. And I have found like some healthy ways to stay on it, but I still really limit it. And, but I think that's different. Everyone has a different sort of threshold, right? So everyone has to figure out what, how much can I take? And I set, I set a, like a a clock, you know, a stopwatch basically saying 10 minutes, like no more than 10 minutes and, and get off because otherwise it's going to start filling me up with all of this negative information. A lot of it's caricatures about other people. It's just always about you know, the worst things that people have done. And for me, taking in all that information, I, you know, the title of one of my chapters is what goes in must go out. It's either you're going to spew it out against somebody else, or you're going to, what's going to happen is what happened to me, which is I got physically sick. Right. And so I think that you're very smart to recognize that it's something that, that probably isn't very healthy for you. And I think it is the Harvard social scientist, Arthur Brooks, who talks in terms of this being rhetorical dope peddlers or conflict entrepreneurs, and they're sucking us in as a dope peddler would do. And we just have to be mindful 
of that in order to be healthy. Yeah. And the thing he also says is that we always focus on the other people's rhetorical dope peddler. So there's all, you know, I'll look at the people they're listening to, look at the media they're consuming. And he says, no, be focused on your rhetorical dope peddler. Who is it that's feeding you and selling you stuff that's getting you outraged all the time versus informed? So, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being angry. I think we should be angry when we see things like injustice or we see people being harmed. Anger tells you something's wrong. It's actually a positive emotion. The question is, what do you do with it? Do you then turn that into contempt and demonization? Or do you use it to go and, and do something that would actually help the situation? And, and unfortunately, I think too many of us have often thought, well, the way I help the situation is to go and say something really like, biting on Twitter. Right. And it's just not, that's, I just don't think that's the solution, you know, and sometimes I do think people have to be called out on social media. So I always have to put that little asterisk there. Um, but I don't think it's one of those things that, uh, every situation calls for. It's really the most extreme situations. And, and we tend to treat all situations as extreme situations. Right. And you, you talk in terms of, there is a space for healthy conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not uh, let us all be ostriches and stick our head in the sand and um, not engage. Um, but there is a space for healthy conflict. And there's also in, I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King's words, a place for creative maladjustment. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, yes. Which he, he says is there are some things that, are so concerning that we must always be maladjusted to them if we are people of goodwill. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's, that's an important thing to remember and that most of us also have not learned how to engage in healthy conflict. Very few people grew up in families that modeled this certainly isn't modeled in the public sphere. And so to, I have a whole chapter about that, but there are plenty of books you know, people could also read about it, but to learn how to have a disagreement with somebody in a way that doesn't spiral out of con- control, in a way where you talk about ideas and not people, that you don't say, you talk about what the person believes, you don't talk about who they are, uh, that you don't use contempt, that you don't use demonization, that you don't use sort of these different behaviors that we use again to dominate each other. It always comes back to that, you know, where we're trying to dominate each other or quote unquote, win an argument versus entering into a conversation with curiosity and empathy. And, um, and someone now I'm sure someone who's listening will think this because people always ask me, well, what about the fact that they don't have empathy for me? Or what about the fact that they're not having curiosity for me? The only thing we have control over in this world is ourselves. And, and by responding, you know, if, if a person really is like that and you're talking to a person and they really don't have empathy and they really don't have any curiosity and they're talking to you with contempt, that's when you use boundaries and you say this conversation's over. You're not obliged to be abused by people. That's not, that's not what we're here for. Right. And that's an act of grace for yourself. And which is a very important aspect of grace, which is having grace for yourself as well. And, 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 and by not demonizing them and going down the road, that road, you're, you're acting with grace towards them. If you don't use boundaries, you probably will start demonizing them because your resentment, you'll become resentful, right? Boundaries are what keep, keep us from becoming resentful. Resentment, resentment builds up 
when we don't confront other people's behavior and it keeps happening and happening and happening, and then we explode or we cut them off or we demonize them or whatever it is versus just saying like, look, I don't have conversations like this. So if you want to talk to me about this, you're going to have to, these are the rules of the road. And if you can't follow them, then we're not talking about it. End of story. It's just, you don't have to judge them. It's not, it's just, that's it. And you don't walk away, you know, you don't walk away carrying all their stuff, which is what judgment does to you. It's like, you're just like, oh, hi, could you pour all your stuff in my purse so I can carry it around all day? (laughs) Right. I I remember in the green room at CNN, I would sit with many people whose politics were very different than mine. And I always uh, engaged in conversation. I was always looking for common ground between us. And then we'd go on TV and the person would say X and I would say, not X, and I uh, get a call from my family or friends, and they'd say, "How could you be so civil with that person? His views are so abhorrent." I say, "But he's really actually a nice guy or a nice gal, and he loves the Yankees, and I love the Yankees." And they said, "Like, I have no use for you if you mm-hmm. don't see the world in these binary terms that he's our enemy and and and, yeah. and we're righteous." Then yeah. you're you're you know you're missing the yeah. point. And I say to myself, no, I don't think that that's exactly right. Who's missing the point? Who? Right. Yeah. I think that it's um, it is just seeing all of the humanity in somebody. And the reason it gets into this binary where it becomes binary is when people hear you say that and think that means you're endorsing it. Right. So it's like emp- like I've seen someone say somewhere I don't know who it is. Empathy is not endorsement. It's not saying that it's okay. But it is recognizing that, yeah, it's better for the other person if you see them that way, but that it's better for you. Why are you going to let, like, give up your own humanity? Um, and, and again, let other people, you're, it's giving away your power to other people. It's letting other people dictate how you feel and, and how you think. Um, why would you give that to somebody else? And I didn't really understand that, you know, I because, again, we we have this idea that we're doing something that's strong. We're dominating them. We're like, we're being mean to them or we're letting them know that we don't approve of them or all these other things that absolutely never changes a single person's mind anyway. Right. But, but more important, like we're just, we're letting that person dictate how we feel. And I, you know, I just, I'm just a total no to that. Like I am not going to give that power to other people the way that I used to, where I used to be driving home from CNN, just like, you know, Oh my God, I'm gonna, I don't, this, I can't believe this or that, you know, on the phone with my, you know, with my fiance. And then I come in and then we talk about it and I think about it. And, you know, once I started practicing grace, I just got to a point of like, that's you and that's yours, not mine. Right. It's funny. I said to you earlier that uh, after reading the book, I went back and reread The Colleague of the American Mind and Radical Forgiveness and other things. And one of the books I, I reread was on Unbroken, the little, um, the Laura Hillebrand book yeah. where the, the Japanese um, prisoner yeah. of war doesn't really put the war and the torture he faced behind him until essentially he finds grace. Yeah. Well, that's, I know. And that's, what's always, it's so counterintuitive, right? It doesn't, it goes against everything that we're taught and it's, it's the only way. And even unforgiveness, it's very, it's a very similar dynamic in that when you don't forgive another person, the person who suffers the most is you. It's just, isn't, I mean, a lot of time the other person doesn't even care that you haven't forgiven them. Right. And sometimes they do, but even when they do, you're always hurting yourself 
more, you're always letting this other person dictate, you know, the rest of your life, basically, right? That you're going to walk around holding and carrying this thing because of something that somebody else did. And so to let go of that is, is, is something that you're actually doing for yourself. And it's not letting the person off the hook. That's the other thing. People think that that means that you're saying that it's okay or that the person's not responsible. It's not. It's just saying, I'm not going to carry this. Um, it's why M- MLK says hate is too great a burden to bear because it's a burden and we bear it. It's right. it, yeah. And so if you think about it that way, you think like, why would I, why would I take all that stuff from other people? <laughs> exactly. You know? In conclusion, you write. We have to choose to be different kinds of people if we want to have a different kind of country. Demonization, domination, dehumanization got us into this mess. Grace just may help lead us out of it. I hope. Yeah. I, hope. I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I quote Einstein. It's, it's a sort of a paraphrase of something that he said, but you can't change a problem with the same consciousness that created it. So like you said that after the atomic bomb was yeah, created, right? Yes. Yeah. So the idea that we're going to, again, the fight fire with fire kind of mentality, it's like, it's, you know, if we want things to be different, then we have to do things differently. And we have to do things differently than we've ever done them. That's the thing. We've never really done that. We do have some models of it. I, the civil rights leaders are models of that, but that wasn't something that ever has really permeated our culture. And, and so I think that, you know, if that did permeate our culture, it would be, it would be radically, it would be a radical change. Um, but, you know, I'm realistic that, you know, at least in the near term, the best, the best thing we can do is at least, you know, as they say, sweep your own porch, right? Like take care of yourself, um, and, and the people around you and, and then hope that, you know, other people, can adopt this sort of mentality, but whether they do or they don't, it's still going to be better for you if if you practice grace. It's a wonderful book, Kirsten. Saving grace, speak your truth, stay centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. It really is, I think, a template for cooperation and coexistence where the stakes are such that if not, we perish. Yes. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.